why I'm like, <laughs> out of my yeah. room. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our latest edition of Inspired, where we bring together people from all different walks of life to discuss what inspires them to follow their passions. Today's guest is educator, writer, mommy, <laughs> and mm -hmm. author of Motherhood So White, Nefertiti Austin. Thank you so much for joining us and welcome. Thanks for having me. So um, it is so great to talk to you. I've known you for so long and I've just always been so impressed by you and your talents and, 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 and I just wanted to ask you, you know, what was it that led you to want to share your adoption experience with the world? Because I know it's a really sort of personal journey that, right. that you went through. Right. Well, certainly my intention was not to put all of my business in the street, <laughs> but I think in noticing the lack of and the erasure of black women in the parenting genre and, you know, the whole mommy narratives, mommy wars, that sort of thing, I really had no choice but to share my story as an example of a diverse voice that was missing within certain spaces. And it wasn't to toot my own horn as look at me, I'm so special, just more of, you know, for everyday people who are just out, you know, working and wanting to build a family. There are so many ways to create a family. This is the way I did it. And when I couldn't see myself on the page, didn't see myself on the page. And even now there are a few more books that are out that are written by black mothers. Mostly our experiences are still very anecdotal. Mm -hmm. And so I really kind of, I, I told my story out of necessity. Yeah, because that's what's so unique about your book, right? Which is absolutely great, by the way. And I want to get into like some of, you know, the things that I found to be just so interesting a little bit later. But it's very unique because it does come from the perspective of a single Black woman who wants to adopt. And I thought, to me, it was groundbreaking because it bucks stereotypes, right? Because usually, like in the media, whenever they're talking about single Black women, it's women who have not necessarily chosen, right, to be a parent or to be a single mom, right? Yeah. It's circumstances have made them a single mom, right? And it's always sort of seen in a negative light. And you took that to me and you sort of turned it on, on its head. And here you were a successful black woman who you made this choice because you right. knew that you had this love and this home and, and that you could offer, you know, to a child. And I just thought that that was just, I, I really think it, it shifted for me, it shifted the way that, that I saw parenthood. And I think maybe a lot of women, particularly black women as well. Yeah, well, you know, again, something else, you know, I, I wasn't kind of sitting around like, ooh, let me buck stereotype, let me flip it. It was just me just being myself and not believing that a single black motherhood automatically equaled welfare, drug abuse, um, just sort of worst case scenario situation and oops situation, it could be as it was a very intentional act. It was something I thought about. It was something that was a result of my childhood having been raised by grandparents as opposed to being raised by parents. 
it was having an understanding that within our community, we often take in relatives or neighbors or church members because those kids need us. Mm -hmm. And I think we're less concerned about, am I married or do I have a significant other? It doesn't have to be one or the other. And one doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the other. At least in my case, it didn't. Yeah, I thought that that was great. So, okay, so you are no stranger to writing books. This is not your first book, but your other books have been um, fiction books. So kind of what was the difference for you between sort of writing fiction books and then telling sort of what's almost um, an autobiography in a way? Well, I mean, obviously the biggest difference is my, in motherhood so white, I mean, that's my lived experience. So in fiction, there's always a lot of truth in fiction, even in science fiction, there's always a lot, you're a writer, so you know, it's a lot of truth in fiction. But of course, fiction is so much easier because you have a distance from the characters, you're making up stuff. You can be far more honest in fiction than in nonfiction. When you're writing nonfiction, it's, it's a different hat. You're writing from a different space because it does require a vulnerability that you can not hide behind. Whereas in fiction, you can hide behind it because you can say, oh, I made that up. That yeah. isn't real. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's, that's what the character wanted. That's mm-hmm. what the character needed. But in nonfiction, you have to very, you have to have a willingness to be vulnerable and honest. So that was hard because I would have opted to not have been <laughs> quite yeah. so vulnerable and shared quite so much. But it was what the story required in order to get across, you know, these hierarchies within Black motherhood and to discuss, you know, race and gender within adoption and uh, parenting. Yeah, I think what you said about like uh, being vulnerable, was willing to be vulnerable was so interesting. And I think not only is it when you write an autobiography, it's also, I guess, a willingness to, um, I don't know. I don't want to say like piss other people off, but like, cause like if you read the book, right? Like I read the book and I was like, Oh, I know that person. I know that person because I know you. Right. <laughs> so is this the fear that somebody will like read it and they'll like recognize themselves and be like, wait a minute. Like I didn't like, that's not how it happened. Or was she interpreted it this way? Or I mean, was, is that a fear? Like when you go into writing something that's based on a true, true, true story. Well, I didn't so much have that fear. Most of the people in the book, I, I kind of gave a heads up and I said, okay, I'm getting ready to write this and you're in it. Mm-hmm. I didn't necessarily go into details and I didn't do a deep dive into those um, friendships, you know, those relationships either. So I felt that I wrote about people in a way that was respectful mm-hmm. and it didn't, it doesn't, it doesn't lend itself to be embarrassing or for them to feel as though I was criticizing them. I mean, anyone who knows me knows that I did not have the best relationship with my mother. Like that's no secret. So I wasn't worried about that. And even though she had died when I had written the book, even if she were still alive, I mean, I wouldn't have changed it to suit her because it wasn't about her. It's not about the other people in the book. It's, it's about, motherhood and black motherhood in these spaces where we belong but where we are often not found so i was less concerned about other people's feelings because this is my story and if they want to write their own story they're welcome to do so 
Yeah, I did think, though, that it was handled, you know, very, very, very respectfully, like when I read it, you know, and, you know, I always thought, you know, I would get a thrill if somebody like included me in their autobiography. So I thought it was actually like, um, <laughs> you know, they should be honored, <laughs> <laughs> especially because the book is so well written and being so, you know, well received. So I thought, you know, I just think it was great. Um, you know, you talked about, you mentioned your mom a little bit, and you had very, very interesting parents <laughs> who were like, and particularly, you know, I think about that a lot. Well, particularly like in the age of sort of Black Lives Matters, right? Because your parents were very much, you know, Black Hour, you know what I mean? They named you Nefertiti, yes. you know, so you can be proud of your Black heritage, you know, they were unconventional parents. Um, but how would you say for people that haven't read the book yet if you haven't read the book shame on you because it's fantastic but what would you say how would you say that shaped you i think in many ways <clears throat> excuse me so on the one hand certainly knowing about their activism and i think understanding that everyone you do it in the way that suits you best so if my parents were millennials and even if they were older at this point and all that has happened in the last few months my parents certainly would have been on the front lines out there you know black lives matter say her name all of that you know as as younger people they definitely would have been out and so for me that's not necessarily my way i my protest is through words and so through the written word so i think i certainly learned that there are different ways to be an activist through them and then probably the biggest lessons was really just in their absence because they didn't raise us. And so it was in the, this is good. And then this is what happens when drugs and crime and stereotype and racism intervene in a family and breaks a family. And so this is how these things destroy a family and within a family, you have pathologies, things that get passed down. This is how you break certain things. So it, it's probably more in their absence than maybe in their day-to-day their -day presence that I got the most, um, most lessons. So you mentioned in the beginning of your book that one of the reasons why you wanted to write this book was because you were raising a Black son. Yes. And Unfortunately, like these issues, they don't seem to be going away. <laughs> it's like every day, you know, it's another unarmed Black man shot by the police. And I was just curious um, if you're sort of from the time that you've written the book until now, if your thoughts sort of on parenting a Black boy has changed, evolved, um, if you've doubled down on some of the issues, like, like, like what, what, what? kind of goes through your head, you know, still like when you're seeing these things continuously happen? Well, unfortunately, like you said, things are continually happening. I mean, Jacob Blake's shot in the back seven times in front of his children. I mean, that's just ridiculous. It's over kill. I mean, the man is still alive, but he very well may be paralyzed for the rest of his life. I mean, it's like you have a taser. Why don't you use the taser? I, I don't understand that. So my thoughts on it haven't changed because the world hasn't changed. And while I'm definitely hopeful for maybe my grandchildren 
at this particular moment in time, there's still quite a bit of lip service that's happening. Mm-hmm. Doesn't seem to be a whole lot of change happening, given that this man was shot today's Thursday and that just happened like, yeah. five days ago on Sunday. So I am super excited about the athletes who refused yeah. to perform for white people last night, you know, and, and I noticed today the Dodgers and the Giants aren't going to play. And so I'm so happy because I'm feeling like this gets to be the next layer of protest Mm -hmm. and you really get the world's attention when you walk off the court you walk off the diamond so you know perhaps in another few weeks when we get through this next election cycle and take a look at what's happening at the local level maybe i'll have a different answer but for right now you know it's the same it's how do i keep him him safe as he rides to his friend's house you know down Slauson, mm-hmm. across La Brea, across Fairfax by himself, you know, but I got to let him go because he's of that age and he wants to be free and he should be. And then you have a daughter as well. So, I mean, I know the concerns are a little bit different, but the same too, because yeah. we all know Black women as well yes. know, are victims of all different types of crime, you know, Absolutely. in addition to, you know, police brutality and community crime, they also have to deal with domestic violence and, and all different other kind of things. What mm-hmm. sort of um, challenges have you found um, raising your a, a little Black girl? I think the biggest thing is imaging. It's finding the right balance of TV shows, cartoons even, cartoons or, you know, just regular shows that she can watch that are not only age appropriate, but visually appropriate. Mm. You know, where are the black girl leads and the black girls who are not sassy? We get enough, it's like, I got, you know, just a regular black girl who is doing her thing, whatever that thing may be. So that's huge because I'm, I'm watching the show. She's getting older and I'm, you know, paying attention to what she's tuning into and the things that catch her eye. And I'm like, here we go again mm-hmm. with that. So it's keeping her, you know, when she's seven, she should be seven. Yeah. And not seven going on 14. Yeah. And the dolls that are available. And once again, the things that catch her eye, she's a girly girl. She likes the bling and the hair and the makeup and all that stuff. And it's having a regular conversation with her about, well, she is a teenager, so she can do those things. Or she's a grown up and she can do those things. And you're a child. And so maintaining her emotional and physical innocence, which is different from the whole having to steal her racial innocence, mm-hmm. teaching her about race and and those things that will certainly be coming her way. But yeah, that's that's a struggle, especially since I know that black girls are often seen older mm-hmm. and that sass gets interpreted as um, not being kind mm-hmm. and you know certainly wanting her to not be a target of sexual violence, you know, even as a little girl because she's a black girl who's perceived as, as being older and one day more promiscuous because of her skin color. So you mentioned that you were raised by your grandparents and um, you know, in the book, um, they're just warm, wonderful people. <laughs> you really, really, really love them. Um, but I often wonder, like, did you feel, and I don't know if maybe at the time or in retrospect, but did you almost feel sort of like an adopted child sort of when you looked back on it? Yeah, I think when I was writing it, that was when I sort of 
kind of had my whole therapeutic breakthrough with regard to our relationship. So I very much felt like I belonged to them. So it was never a question of, of did we belong, you know, where I was, I wanted, was I loved. I always felt that way. And yeah, I think in, in hindsight, I probably felt adopted because I, I always say my grandparents raised five kids and they did. And, you know, I was number four of yeah. the five uh, that they raised. So in many respects, I, I was more of their daughter than granddaughter. Um, and you talked a little bit in the book about how when you wanted when you talked about how you wanted to adopt, there was sort of a little bit of pushback like around that. Yeah. And I know, you know, that you had your own, you know, concerns like, like anybody would, but what was ultimately the thing that made you decide I'm doing this? Well, I was ready to be a mother and I knew that there were thousands of children right in my backyard in the foster care system. And there was no reason not to adopt. So I didn't necessarily want to be a single parent, but my desire to be a mother really kind of overrode any feelings about, oh, I should, you know, be married or, oh, I should have a, you know, significant other. I need a boyfriend, as I was told, or a husband, as I was told, in order to do that. So I, I you know, that feeling of wanting to have a child is strong. And it's something that I think, at least for me, I gave into because I needed to. It was like, okay, I have to do this and this is the way I wanted to do it. And yeah, my family was definitely concerned. They were not on board with my decision. And, you know, I wasn't so much surprised that they weren't thrilled about it, but they got over it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and of course they love the kids, so oh. <laughs> it worked out. <laughs> yeah. Um, is, is there any particular lesson that you hope people take from reading your book? Uh, I think a couple of lessons. You know, one, if you want a family, I think any you want to adopt, I think you should. I wish more middle-class single Black women who want children would go ahead and adopt. There are all of these children who need homes. So many women I know who are educated and financially, you know, mature in their lives and they're stable and they have a lot to give and a lot to teach. I mean, not just financially, but emotionally and spiritually and so creative. They would just be such a blessing on a child or children who could, you know, and that, that blessing works in both directions. I think their lives would be, you know, doubly blessed as well. So I think, you know, it's definitely one lesson. The other lesson is that I believe that Black mothers have a very unique experience when it comes to parenting. I mean, we certainly have a long relationship raising white children, and there's no reason why our stories are considered marginal in publishing. Like, they should be all in the mix mm -hmm. because we've got this long history of raising other people's children. That's huge. I think that white mothers should really strongly, whether or not they have white children or they have mixed race children or they've adopted transracially, I think they need to actively seek out black mothers and forge alliances because at the end of the day, we all want the same thing. We want children who are empathetic. We want children who are happy. We want children who will go forth into the world and do good. And that those are universal things that 
we all want. And I think the last lesson that I want white parents in particular to take away is that black parents have to talk about race with their children. Like we really don't have a choice because systemic racism has set us up for such that we know there will be barriers that our kids will mm -hmm. experience. And in order to prepare them, it's not to hurt them, but it's just to prepare them to be able to successfully navigate the world. We, we have to talk about race and therefore they have to talk about race with their kids because there's nothing wrong with seeing color. Yeah, That's fine, but we have to appreciate each other's cultural differences. I think those are what, three, maybe four lessons. Yeah, no, those are, those are great lessons. <laughs> what would you say to somebody who feels like they have a story to tell, you know, but they're not exactly sure um, if they can or if they should? Well, I, I guess they'd have to figure out why, what's the, what is the hesitation? Mm -hmm. So if you have something to say, you know, write it down. Publishing is so different from how it used to be when I started out, you know, a whole bunch of years ago. And there's self-publishing, there's blogs, I mean, you know, YouTube channels, IG Live, Facebook Live. You can tell your story all day long, anytime you want. And if you have something to say, you know, I think you should say it. And if you're hesitant, maybe, maybe you're hesitant because it's not really time to tell it or it's not time to share it. And if you have a story to tell, that doesn't necessarily mean everyone in the world needs to know it. Maybe you just tell it for yourself. Maybe it's just to get it out of your head or out of your heart onto the page or onto the screen just for you or maybe just for your family. So there's no one way to do it. That's great. Um, and so do you have any um, upcoming appearances, books, anything you should be on the lookout for? Um, I'm sure I do. I have to, I could, yes, the answer is yes, I do. I'd have to pull my calendar up because <laughs> off the top of my head, I couldn't say. Um, well, we can go to your website, right? What's your yes. website? Well, my website is www.nefertitiaustin.com. And I do update it and I, yes, so they will, the, the stuff that's coming up will be on there. All right, All right. My kids are getting ready to go to school. So my, I'm a little more focused on them at this particular moment, but I do As you should be. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We um, really appreciate that. And for everybody who's watching this or listening to this, thank you so much. And until next time. Bye. Right, bye.